Hello everyone, it's January 4th, 2022. Happy New Year and happy successful JWST launch. We have a new and amazing telescope in space. Of course, the nail biting isn't over quite just yet. Full deployment is a long process, so we're gonna get into that a little bit, but so far so good, and so, lift off. And we have cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 340 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben, and I got a beer. And I'm Dennis. <laughs> so for for those listening to the recording, we've been sitting here for over an hour chatting about everything under the sun uh, and just, you know, generally enjoying being back together after a week off. And mm. uh, it, it just, the the beer spirit hits you sometimes, you know? <laughs> I still just have a Diet Coke, so not, not nearly as fun, but I've already opened it so you don't get to hear that sound effect. <laughs> Hey, it's after it's after twelve. I don't have to. I don't have to drink a coke. It seems like a lot has happened in the world of spaceflight. Um, obviously, JWST, yeah, but we'll talk about that sooner. But just like a lot of little news too. Yeah, we we cut a lot of short and sweets. We have a main topic that we that we didn't end up writing up either. So like, <laughs> um, but the 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 other main topic that we could have done was um, the ISS extension, which I would like to to dig into a little bit at some point, even if it's just on my own, because like you know when so basically the the Biden Harris administration um, formally committed NASA to extend operation uh, ISS operations through 2030. And like, I, I don't know what that means. I don't think it means that we're guaranteed to go through 2030. Uh, but the fact that it's an international agreement means that maybe we are. So I, w- I would like to dig in a little bit more and, and find out, at least build some expectations for myself. But also, I thought that the that it was not an international agreement, that it was just them supporting the oh, extension, okay. but they still had to get other nations on, you know, or they had to get, I guess, JAXA on board, Russians. Yeah. Exactly. So yeah, we'll probably shouldn't talk about any more of it because we did not do the research. <laughs> but like, yeah, d- just to say like, yeah, a lot happened in space. Had you seen the images of Tianwen-1 dropping that little mini satellite oh, and taking no. pictures of itself on orbit around Mars? Oh my oh, God. I've not seen that. They, they, they released this similar to their outbound trip towards Mars when they sent that camera tumbling away that took some pictures of the mm-hmm. spacecraft while it still had the rover and lander attached. Well, now the orbiter has been there for a while, but it just put something into <laughs> orbit around Mars to go and snap pictures back at the spacecraft. Oh, I wonder why they, why they put a selfie cam on. Like, what data is important enough to... I, I guess it's probably less about the data and more about... Mm spacecraft uh proximity operations but man how how crazy is it to see third party (laughs) a third party Mm -hmm. view a third person view of a spacecraft around mars like hey that's an actual planet with things around it like that's crazy yeah what what about um what about the moon rover what's the name of the one on the far side of the moon changa four is it four or U22. Yeah, Chang'e 5 was a sample return that came back. Okay. Okay. So 4 was U22 lander would be the one that's still suiting around if I Well, did you did you see the the structure on the horizon that they decided to go check out? Oh yeah, the monolith. I mean, sorry, the uh the rock. Uh, well, I mean, like to... I can't wait to see it close <laughs> up because like of course, you know, you see anything that looks constructed or or you know structural like of course shaped yeah 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 the first thing we think is oh it's artificial um it it must there must be meaning in these pixels and of course Mm -hmm. there's not 
um, there's history in the pixels, but, but not, not intention. Um, so I really want to see what this thing looks like because like the face on Mars, it's really cool to have like the original image where you're like, Oh yeah, that really does look like a face. Um, mm -hmm. and then you see subsequent photos and it's like, Oh, I can kind of see where that face is, but like, it's, mm -hmm. uh, it really is just a mountain, and like that's that's what I'm excited to see. Well, well, you know what the truthers say about that: the face on Mars, the high mm. resolution ones. That was after mm -hmm. we sent missiles to destroy what was originally there. <laughs> sure, sure. Thus yeah. proving that checks out for me. <laughs> Okay, so the big news, right? Uh, JWST. It's so far everything's successful. It launched on Christmas Day, which was a nice little Christmas present. I got up and watched it just in time because I set my alarm. I didn't want to have to get up that early, but I did, and uh, watched it and was nice. amazed to watch everything just you know go according to plan. Not that I thought that it wouldn't, but I was just worried, um, as I think we all were. Well, I set my alarm on Christmas Eve. Yeah, I set my alarm on Christmas Eve, and I got up, checked Twitter. And then went back to sleep. I accidentally mm -hmm. stayed up too late on Christmas Eve. And so I was like, I really don't want to set an alarm. If I wake up on time, that's great. If not. And so uh, my partner actually woke me up uh, on time. Well, I don't know if she woke me up on time, but I definitely did not tune in on time. I, I tuned in when they were already on the second stage. But like, yeah, I, I was worried about it too, David. And like, I'm still worried about it, Yeah, but everything's gone right so far. It was fun to watch. And you know, it was, there was, there was kind of like a lot of fanfare, you know, because this is a big yeah. event. And so I was watching everything happening inside the Jupiter control center. Um, and there were a lot of people talking and giving, you know, their comments. And I remember that there were like little segments, like each nation that had a hand in this development, uh, they had like a representative speaking on behalf of, you know, that nation, right? I guess. At least that's mm. how I remember it. And so there was like someone from America, someone from, I remember Canada, uh, and they did that in both English and French. Um, and then, uh, I don't know, like many other nations. And so it, it kind of made me realize just, you know, how big of a project this is. Oh, yeah. So Delta V is pushing us into <laughs> some of my first bullet points here. Mm -hmm. um, okay. So, right. It launched on Christmas, December 25th. The residual fair, the residual pressure inside the fairing was below the required limits thanks to the new vent port. So that went well. Um, we got to see some really fantastic footage from Rialtra's Vicky cameras. I, I hope that when, uh, when everybody saw that footage, they knew exactly what that camera looked like. Uh, cause, you know, we, we talked to Rialtra. We got two interviews in with Rialtra before, uh, I was going to say before the launch, but it was, it was months ago. So <laughs> yeah. And then, yeah. Uh, Delta V in the chat says the only part I didn't think was great was Nelson, honestly. And yeah, I was sitting in bed and that was, I, I watched up to about that point before I tuned out and, uh, you know, clicked over to Reddit or whatever. But yeah, um, what was up with Nelson's speech? I don't remember it, actually. So was there something... I mean, I do remember him speaking, but I didn't take any note of it. What What was it that he said? It was just you're, super You're, you're going to have to fill me in. It was just super Christian. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Huh. Uh, I must have tuned it out entirely because I don't remember that at all. Maybe I only caught the end of it or something. So yeah, he said it was notable that they launched on Christmas Day because, you know, long ago, the wise men looked up into the sky and saw the star of David. Or is that is that what the, the Jesus star was called? Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, it was? David. Okay. It is? Okay. Yeah. And, and so Perfect. like... 
you know, a millennia ago, a, a shepherd grazing his sheep looked up and saw the stars. It's just, <laughs> and he said that the shepherd became a poet and, um, he penned the words, uh, the heavens declare the glory of God, or I think it was the glory of the coming of the Lord or whatever, but like the firmament shows his handiwork and it's just like, okay, all right. But you know, that poet, that that poet shepherd certainly did not say those things like you're you're way deep into mythology that very few people on this you know international team share so like just just take a chill pill <laughs> well i so i was wrong it, it's a star bethlehem actually i realized i had to, okay. had to look that up that's right that makes more sense yeah, yeah star, that's, star that... david is the more general oh no no a uh, colin in the chat says it was a reference to david who wrote the Psalms, not the Christmas story. Wow. Okay. So it, it was, this was like prepared. This wasn't even like a spontaneous, Oh, Hey, it's Christmas. I can talk about, I can talk about the birth of Jesus. It was like, this was planned, man. Yeah. Well, and, and I don't know, like maybe it was just a throwback to Apollo eight and the Genesis reading. Cause that was also a Christmas mission. Yeah. So. Oh yeah. And then Delta V says at the end, he, uh, he said that we were going to observe the beginning of creation in, in a way that really sounded like, he was like quoting from a listicle or something like it didn't sound very informed about what JWST is actually going to do. Like, yeah, JWST is going to see some really, really early light, but like, it's not, it, it that's not everything it's going to do. Like JWST is going to do so many more things than look at the, look at distant galaxies. I don't know, man. It just, it really didn't mm -hmm. sit right with me and, and a lot of other people. Dennis, can you talk about the, the Betty White space telescope? tweet that you posted because oh. i love that name and the tweet itself yeah so there's this unofficial jwst scope uh, that's the handle jwst scope on twitter uh it has right because naming it after james webb is controversial and so they <laughs> they joked about how easy it was to rename the telescope because they just changed the name of their twitter account to the betty white space telescope so if you I love it. are interested in the bwst uh, I guess use that hashtag, but yeah. they, they wrote right after the, the speech that my mirror hasn't been deployed yet. And I could still see all of you cringing at Bill Nelson's speech, which is a pretty great burn, but yeah. Yeah. Man. So like Betty White, right? Like, sorry, uh, rabbit hole here. Mm. Um, Betty White was amazing. Uh, it sucks that we lost her, but can you think of any better comedic timing than dying just a few weeks before your 100th birthday. <laughs> uh, somebody, I saw a tweet somewhere and somebody was like, you know, Betty White knew how to leave us wanting more. And mm. like, yeah. And, and hours before new year's toast. Thank you. Delta V like just man, that lady was so cool. Yeah. <laughs> she, she knew how to do it. I understand that, you know, the timing of her death is, is totally out of her control, but like, is it though? Oh, I just want to say my favorite thing that I heard about that was try to live your life. Like when you die at 99, people think you went too soon. Exactly. I, I should be so lucky. All right. So back to JWST. After uh, the vehicle separated from the second stage, control then, you know, lands in uh, the missions operation center. And um, it, it's so cool because like the launch control center is in South America. Like there are all of these, all these different geographical locations that have control, uh, over different parts of the mission. And, and by control, I mean like assembling parts, 
it, that that's control, right? Like your actions have an outcome. Um, but anyway, control flips up to, uh, Baltimore, um, where the, uh, the missions operation center is, uh, they're at the, uh, the space telescope science Institute. And mm-hmm. that happened 30 minutes after launch, uh, at, and I believe second stage uh, separation from the second stage was about, I think it was like 31 minutes or something. Right. Um, and so they, you know, they take control over the operations, but they're not able to talk to the vehicle until the vehicle gets, um, into range of the, the station at Malindi in Kenya. So the vehicle actually deploys its solar array automatically. And this is really cool. I didn't realize that the solar array deployment timing was up in the air. Um, it had hmm. two alternatives. First, it would prioritize deploying it after the spacecraft was oriented relative to the sun. And then there was like a longest wait time that it would wait for, which was 33 minutes after launch. Um, and in this case, it actually deployed like, I think it was a minute and 20 seconds after separation. Like it was in the correct orientation right away. Um, and We'll talk a little bit more about the second stage. Ariane, the, the Ariane performed wonderfully. Uh, and one of the things that it did that we saw really early on was it was oriented in the correct direction. So, uh, missions o- operations controls, the MOC sent their first command from Melindy. And I, I was kind of looking for what, what all they put in that first command. Um, the only thing I was able to roughly confirm is that it included, uh, a command to power up the reaction wheels. And whether it was in that first command or a subsequent command, they also did a test of the thruster pretty early. Um, and, and they tested that thruster before their mid-course correction, uh, their first mid-course correction happened. The first mid-course correction was called MCC-1A, and the burn lasted for 65 minutes. Um, and those 65 minutes worth of thrust got them 20 meters per second of Delta V. So th- this is a very cool aspect of getting JWST into position to do science. The upper stage uh, of the Ariane 5 could have put them into a perfect or, or put them into a L2 transfer uh, trajectory right away. They didn't necessarily have to do any orbit raising burns, right? Cause like that's basically what, uh, MCC1A is. It, they would have missed, uh, L2 if they hadn't done it. But the key here is that they cannot correct for burns that add too much energy. They can only, they can only add energy from this point on. They can't burn back towards earth. And that's just because of how delicate the telescope is. They can't have it, uh, be exposed to the sun, even on mm-hmm. the way out, uh, to L2. And so, um, since L2 is anti sunward, right? It's on the other side of the sun from earth. They can burn towards it, but they can't back away from it. Um, they can't reorient the spacecraft and they also couldn't put any thrusters on the top of the spacecraft right to slow them down without turning around and and so all of this affects both getting to l2 in that they have to um have area the Arian upper stage stop short of the target so that they have the safety margin, but it also affects their operations once they get to l2 
um, once they get there, they are not going to ever go to the far side of the, of the stable point. They're always going to be on the earth side. Um, L2 is one of the unstable Lagrange points in that it, it's like a hill with almost a flat top, but not quite a flat top. Uh, it's still got curvature to it. So you can sit exactly on top of the hill, but you're going to roll down the hill one way or the other eventually. And because of the way, uh, because of the constraints that are placed on the vehicle, they're going to intentionally sit on the south slope, as it were, the earth side of that gravity slope. So they can always burn towards the peak of the hill. Um, and they're never going to go up to the peak and they're never going to pass it or otherwise the vehicle would be toast. That's just delightful to me. Some <laughs> adding constraints yeah. is always fun. Um, but like all these constraints having a such a perfect solution that winds up with them having to, you know, dump 20 meters per second into their vehicle as soon as possible, uh, is, is just delightful to me. And, and by the way, 1A is, is actually a time critical, correction burn um, because it's not really a mid-course correction it's more like it's more like a, an orbit raising burn and they had to do it uh, as early as possible to take uh, advantage of the oberth effect the later that they do that burn the more fuel it's going to take to actually achieve the the trajectory that they need and um, while it's time critical they actually scheduled it a little later than they might have potentially been able to schedule it just to make sure that they had really solid uh, position and velocity fixes from the ground stations um, so that's one a they broke the entire mid-course correction burn up into three different burns is the way that the is the way that they talk about it. I think a better way to think about it is to look at the the names of the burns. So there's one A, one B, and then MCC two. Um, and I think MCC two is actually a mid-course correction, and then MCC one A and one B are more like the escape burns. Um, and uh, so they did one A uh, pretty early on. Um, and, uh, yeah, 20 meters per second. I will talk about one B in a little bit, but yeah. So the, the launch characteristics really had a big impact on the vehicle. Um, pointing it in the correct direction, uh, was the, the first most evident thing to onlookers. Um, but the accuracy of the velocity, right? Not just the direction that they were pointing when they shut or when they separated the telescope, but the, the exact amount of energy that that the Ariane upper stage uh, donated to JWST was really important. And in this case, it was very, very, very precise, which is awesome. Right now, they're being very cagey. NASA's being very cagey with their language. Um, but they have said that um, you know, the primary mission is, is 10 years and they had, you know, a fuel reserve baseline that they had to hit in order to hit those 10 years. Um, and they said, yep, we achieved our 10 years and we have much more fuel than that even. So we're looking at mm. a good long life for JWST, assuming that nothing goes wrong, right? Like there are always things that could eat up that fuel faster. But right now it looks like uh, like JWST is going to be a long lived observatory. Yeah. So I, I, I just looked it up and I think, yeah, apparently the reason why uh, MCC2 is so much later than MCC 1A and 1B and also has a different number is it seems like it's more like an insertion burn. Right. Right. You don't go to a direct point 
obviously in this kind of halo, or at least that you orbit, you're orbiting around L2, but that's the insertion burn to get to L2. And so that's why it's about a month to get out there and you're doing this one at T plus 29 days. Yeah. And it, it's weird because yeah, it, it really feels like an insertion burn, but it's not because you're stopping short of, uh, of L2 and it's not like they're going to slow down when they get there. It, it is going to be, um, yeah. I think it's probably going to be more lateral momentum to get them into the correct halo. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a very weird thing when you start working with keyholes, you know, like, um, when you're working with, uh, three body physics, yeah, things get weird. And then, um, Dennis, did, did you want to talk about the, the lifespan of this vehicle? Like, like I listened to a podcast, uh, before, before Christmas, I can't remember if it was before or after the launch, but it was this really cool interview that, um. It, I think it was, um, shortwave from NPR, but they, they talked to an astronomer whose graduate thesis was supposed to be on JWST data. Um, and the delays <laughs> meant that she couldn't do her thesis on the, on the data that she wanted to. And so she's like really excited to finally be able to get the data that she thought that she was going to get, uh, <laughs> ages ago. Yeah. That's, that's just reflecting how many careers are essentially yeah. dependent on JWST right now. And you think about the amount of time and the billions put towards it. And so that's why it's such great news to hear that uh, the lifetime is projected to be significantly longer than those 10 years because Hubble, you're able to service it. It took what, five Hubble missions. There were five mm -hmm. servicing missions. JWST, obviously you can't send anybody out there, but unlike some of these other infrared missions like Spitzer, it's passively cooled. And so it's the station keeping is my understanding is what's setting the lifetime. So the fact that MCC-1B was so perfect meant that it would take less fuel to get you where you need to go. And yeah, <laughs> and uh, yeah, that's, a, that's so great. I really hope that this goes on for decades and decades. Yeah. Also, do we have an idea of how much longer the mission can be extended now? I don't think that that NASA is willing to talk about it. <laughs> I don't mm. think I I'm sure that they have estimates that they've done, but I don't think they trust their own estimates right now. Um, there are just so many things that have to happen. By the way, I mean, good for, you know, uh, I guess it was what Kness because mm. they did such a great job getting it up there. And I remember hearing that like, it was just a lot of pats on the back. Like you did a good job getting this thing to where it's going because they did such a precise insertion burner or like whatever you want to call it um they did such a great job uh that yeah it has extended the life significantly which which i didn't know that that was even a factor like i thought that yeah. you had your burn they had that worked out and that you had like you know pretty much a 10-year lifespan like give or take but i did know that it could hinge so much on just the launch itself so that like really surprised me isn't that cool man jwst is so so freaking cool like <laughs> <laughs> Oh, uh, Anderson says that you probably meant to congratulate Ariane Spas. Did you say? I did say Kness. Okay. Yeah, I, I, I did. And I was looking for the word and I was thinking like, Ari yeah, so that's, yeah, thanks for that correction. Cause I do kind of conflate those two things. So not the, uh, French space agency, but specifically that particular launch organization. What, what's the difference between Ariane Spas and Ariane Group? Is Ariane Group like I think that they're above Ariane Spas? Yeah, Ariane Group is a even larger right uh, joint venture, and they're so one, they're one step up in the in the conglomerate. Yeah, yeah, okay. right. Th yeah, think about how much uh, 
how much of this big defense contractor stuff that Boeing does outside of Boeing right. space. And so similarly, right. Ariane Group probably has an analogous Ariane Spas. Yeah. So uh, continuing on in JWST's life, here, here's the thing. There, there were some pretty good memes going around about how exhausting all these deployment uh, milestones are. And if that if you fall into that group, you're going to hate this episode and you're going to hate uh, a segment from every future episode until JWST is up and running. Because my intention is to cover every single deployment event that I can in as much detail as I can, because I, I y'all should know this about me by now. Like I love the tiny little details. Like I want to know what the smallest screw on this spacecraft is. Like what's the smallest detail I can find? Because for me, like that's what makes this feel real. Um, it doesn't matter if I understand the thing as a whole, if I can understand a couple of small items, the small, small details that I can really understand and visualize in my head, it makes this, it makes any project feel so much more personal. So that's what I'm going to try to do over the next couple of weeks. We'll, we'll see how that goes. But NASA, there'll be a link in the show notes, but NASA has some really fantastic web resources up for JWST, including a where is JWST now website um, that I'm really tempted to turn into a little um, e-ink display to put on my desk, um, as well as a deployment sequence uh, resource. Uh, they call it an explorer where you can click through every single deployment event and see a description and video and all these different things. And it's, it's really good. Um, like it, it's a shocking amount of detail for NASA, um, because they have to balance all these different types of viewers, right? Like the people who are consuming their media are people who are schmucks, but fairly well-informed schmucks like us. Right. And then there are uh, people who are just from the general public and they just heard JWST the day after Christmas and now they're curious. And so they have to serve all of these different interests. And, and so a lot of the time they don't get into a lot of detail. They want to stay friendly and almost cartoony, which I say with a lot of love, uh, um, and, uh, in this case, they, they really have gotten into a lot of detail and it's really satisfying and good, um, for people like us, it's more of a jumping off point than anything. It's not the final answer. Um, but it is really good. Um, the other thing that I would recommend looking at is the, the blogs. What do they call them? NASA has got a blog section and they've got one on JWST and it's reasonably detailed. It's, you know, hedged language. <laughs> Um, but it, it is really good. Okay. So, um, we talked about separation. We talked about deploying the, the solar array and the first correction burn. Um, aside from the solar array, the first deployment step for real was the gimbaled antenna array. And I kind of think about these two separately because the gimbaled antenna array was a commanded deployment. The solar array was an autonomous deployment. The gimbaled, uh, the GAA, the gimbaled antenna array was deployed on the 26th. And, um, this thing is like their main downlink antenna. And it's like the second thing that they did on the spacecraft. Right. And they, they deployed it and did uh, motion tests. And that took about an hour. Then they started working 
on uh, the temperature sensors and the strain gauges. Those are, were actually activated overnight. And then MCC-1B happened on the 27th. MCC-1A did 20 meters per second. MCC-1B did 2.8 meters per second. It was a nine minute, 27 second burn. Sun shield deployment began on the 28th. And the first steps in that are lowering the forward unitized pallet structure and the aft unitized pallet structure. Um, these are the really big movement things that if you've seen animations of JWST, they're like the first thing that happens. They're the big arms that stick up forward in front of and behind um, the, uh, the, the, the mirror tower. And so the first thing to do is just fold them down. And like to illustrate how intense this is, uh, the forward structure uh, was lowered in 20 minutes. The aft structure was lowered in 18. That's like from motor on to motor off. But for each one, the, the forward, the forward structure, the whole process of of sending all these different commands and doing all the different checks took four hours and then the aft structure took six hours there are dozens of steps that go into uh folding these two main structures down like these these things are are very fundamental pieces of the spacecraft um they're where the sun shield the cables the pulleys uh that run on the cables um, all the release mechanisms, like everything is in these two structures. And, and there are dozens of steps, right, to, to do this. So after they got the forward and aft, uh, unitized pallet structures lowered, um, then they deployed the deployable tower assembly. And the deployable tower assembly is really interesting because you would think that it talks about the entire mirror assembly and it doesn't. The deployable tower assembly is literally 48 inches worth of telescoping structure that just lifts the the main mirror up away from the bus and the sun shield um so yeah it it, it I, I don't know how tall it is as a whole but the difference between extended and and stowed is 48 inches or 122 centimeters um that it that it extends out and the the DTA is all about temperature right like this thing is passively cooled um and that that extra space turns out to be uh, pretty important. After the deployable tower assembly uh, extended, they deployed the aft momentum flap. And like this thing is so fun. It's this flap that sticks out of the, the, the bottom of the bus and it just like goes floop and it point it it just sticks it rotates down and just kind of sticks downward kind of like a ducktail and the, the thing is super simple it just has latches that you pop open and then there's a spring actuator that just pushes it into place and it, it can be that simple because it only has to go to its deployed configuration and stay there for the life of the of the vehicle um, and it, it's basically a spoiler on a car as JWST has this giant sunshield deployed, is getting a lot of pressure pushing on the sunshield just from the sun, right? All these particles from the sun are hitting it and it'll push it off axis. And so to save on fuel, well, to save on, uh, spinning your gyros, which then require desaturation burns, which requires fuel. Um, they put this little ducktail on there and it just helps balance out the, the pressure from the solar radiation. And that's why it's pointing downward. It, it deflects the particles 
sideways um, to add some torque. Um, the aphomentum flap um, was deployed on the 30th. After that, they they had already put down the um, the unified crap. I already forgot what it's called. The unitized unitized pallet structures. So just a few hours after they deployed the aphomentum flap, um, they opened the sunshield covers, which are on the top side of the of the pallet structures. And these sunshield covers are really interesting. With almost any other vehicle, you would just have a panel that you release, and it's got springs, and you just push it off into space. Uh, but that's not good. Um, we don't want any chance of anything colliding with the vehicle. So instead, not only do they not have to worry about other pieces of the telescope floating around, but also I believe this is probably a lower mass solution. Um, they basically have like uh, roll out covers. Like I'm thinking like an on, like a roll out awning on an RV, right? There, there are like four uh, four covers, you can think of it, two on each, uh, the forward and back, and they meet in the middle. So you uh, unzip it and they pop open is kind of the way to think about it. And it's really interesting. They actually roll away from the center seam. They they roll up on themselves towards the outside edges and they get stowed. And I would really like to find out what kind of mechanism is used to roll them up um, because they are initially unlatched i believe uh, i believe they're latched um, they they separate and they do a little bit of rollback and then they stay there until they get to the next step um, and so it's not that they are passively actuated it's not that they're biased towards a rolled up configuration and that's where they're stable and so they want to do that there's some amount of actuation that happens to either allow them to roll up or to cause them to roll up. So the next step is is a big one. And this is where we start getting into the interesting things that have happened so far. Up to this point, as far as I can tell, everything went perfectly smoothly, no problems. Uh, but the next step was to deploy the mid-booms. Um, so if the pallet assemblies fold down front and back to form a longitudinal axis, the mid-booms deploy uh, laterally, sticking out in the opposite direction, uh, in an, in a right angle, an orthogonal direction. Um, there's, of course, two, one on each side, forming the diamond-shaped uh, solar array that we all think of. And uh, they actuate separately, as as you might expect. They, they deploy on uh, like a telescoping boom. And uh, each of these booms has five segments that telescope out. Um, as they deploy, they are pulling the sunshield out, but the sunshield is connected to the mid booms by a bunch of tethers. And those tethers, um, will then, they have not slack in them because it's not slack, but they have extra length paid out even once the mid booms have been extended fully. After the mid booms are deployed and locked and good to go, then they will, um, retract those lines and put fully deploy the sunshield. The reason they're doing that is so that they can tension the sunshield with pulleys and tethers as opposed to telescoping segments. It gives them much finer control and it gives them control over each of the sunshield layers individually. This mid-boom extension is surprisingly complex of a movement because not only are these telescoping segments telescoping, um, but there are radiators that fold out underneath the booms. And that happens, uh, at least judging from the animations, it happens at the same time. Um, but I, I believe they deploy separate or 
they may be commanded separately, but I believe they're deployed at the same time um, just for like geometry reasons. Um, I, I don't know if you can have the booms fully extended with the radiators uh, fully retracted or, or undeployed, I guess. And I don't think that you can deploy the radiators with the booms fully retracted or undeployed. So they, they started with the port mid-boom. And they they actually had to delay this sequence. And this is one of the interesting things. When you're reading um, NASA materials, they're constantly saying, here's our plan, but this can change. They have plenty of time to do all these steps. And they have so many steps and so many like single fault uh, operations where if this one thing goes wrong, we're toast. There's, there, there's so much time and there are so many little details that they are taking their time. Their schedule is flexible. They're not going to do anything before they're ready to do it properly. So the, the port mid boom, as far as I can tell, was the first real delay. So the sunshield covers did the first part of their rollback fine they they rolled back as far as they needed to but then they they needed to do the the second half of their movement before they could extend the port booms and it's it's lumped into that sequence of commands so as they begin to to work through the list of steps to extend the port boom the rollback of the sunshield covers had a hiccup uh i love i love hiccups especially ones that you can recover from basically they sent the command to finish rolling it back and stowing the shield but they have position switches um they they call them switches that trigger so i'm assuming they're just you know uh limit switches uh on on a rotational or linear actuator or maybe they are you know like buttons almost that uh, sense the actual position of the shield and not the actuator. But anyway, these switches didn't trigger. And so the question is, is the shield rolled back? And I love the ingenuity that problems require. And the ingenuity here is uh, their switches were out of commission or telling them one thing. They expected another thing to be true. So they used um, both temperature sensors and gyroscope sensors to confirm that the shields were out of the way. Like, how cool is that? Like, temperature sensors make sense. You got about a gazillion temperature sensors all over this vehicle. You can tell uh, which ones are covered by the shield and which ones aren't. Uh, but using gyroscopes, like... Okay, it makes sense, right? Like you, you put torque on the spacecraft, you see how fast it actually moves, and it tells you something about uh, the moment of inertia about the center of gravity. But like to be able to discern whether this thin film of a shield is rolled back all the way or just partially rolled back based on gyroscope data is really freaking mm -hmm. cool. Um, this is a very well-characterized system. We understand so much about what this thing uh, looks like and how it behaves. It's really, really cool. So anyway, they had to delay to do all of that analysis and convince themselves that, yes, we're comfortable extending the mid-booms. Um, and both of the mid-booms uh, were fully deployed on the 31st. Uh, just for reference, we're currently recording this on the 2nd of January. And uh, deploying those mid-booms not only doesn't have a fun problem, but it also involves one of the first small details uh, that caught my eye and that I was able to find out uh, some good information. And what's really cool is the, the live stream actually had really good coverage, uh, of this device. The sun shield is folded up, uh, you know, sort of in origami, uh, like 
Like, uh, I can't fold a fitted sheet. I don't know how they folded up five layers of the sunshield, but you can, you can imagine that you're going to have layers sitting on top of each other, right? As you're doing like zigzag folds to get this giant thing into a small space. And so what's really cool is what they did was in those zigzag folds, um, they have small holes in the sun shield that they're able to insert pins through. So as they fold this thing up, they can align these holes and put a pin through multiple layers of the sun shield. And that holds all those layers nice and snug. There were 107 non-explosive pins holding the sun shield in. 107. <laughs> Each of these pins is like a single fault critical device. And so these things have to be very, very, very reliable. Imagine rolling a die 107 times and getting exactly the result that you want each time, right? Mm -hmm. Like you have to load those odds. This has to be a D100 and you're okay with any roll between one and 99. Um, and even that is worse odds than JWST has, right? Like, I don't, I don't know what the numbers are, but it's like rolling a D like, rolling 12 d100s and you're okay with any of them coming up with a with a zero as long as it's not all of them a zero at the same time i love that you put in D D terms you know actually like you know i don't play role-playing tabletop role-playing games that often but thinking about taking risk in terms of dice rolls has been really helpful for me during the <laughs> pandemic hmm. um right <laughs> because like our instinct very often is well i've taken one risk that means i can take another and it's okay. But in reality, you know, if you take one risk, you should be more conservative on your other risk judgments, right? Um, because well, it's your independent total probability risk. theorem. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and so just thinking about it in terms of how many times can I roll this die before I get a bad number? And so that's that, that, that way of thinking has totally cemented itself during the pandemic. But okay, so we have 107 of these pins, and, and they're really, really neat. So the pin is on the on the top. The pin is going to be released. And as far as I know, it just gets flung out into space. And the pin goes through all the layers of the sun shield, and then it gets captivated by a nut. Um, and basically, we're going to have to release that, that nut that's holding the pin in. So the way this works is the nut is actually split down the middle so that it opens like two halves of a clamshell. So it's, it's split. You put the, you put the pin in and you close the nut. And then they basically wrapped a rubber band around it. It's actually a spring, uh, that gets wrapped around the nut and it's got, you know, a little groove that it can kind of sit in. Um, but that spring holds the nut clamshell closed and it holds the pin captured and everything's nice and tidy but then what what they can do is that spring is connected to a wire and you run current through the wire the wire melts and then suddenly the spring is free to do its you know boiling thing uh it's probably more of a <laughs> is what i'm imagining because it's probably like a <laughs> coil spring right um but the the spring can can release the clamshell can separate and the pink can, can uh, get pushed out uh, I believe it gets pushed out by by a second spring. I could be wrong. Um, but anyway, th this wire gets melted. And it's really cool. On the live stream, they actually had 
they had a, 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 a presumably a test article or an en engineering article, and uh, it has two inputs that they can um, use to dump current into this thing. Every single one of these things had two inputs and they were redundant. You could flow current through one or the other and it'd be fine. And like, yeah, I, I'm kind of surprised they didn't have three for having 107 of these pins, right? But yeah, like we have... Uh, um, frangible bolts and like all these explosive things that are used in so many instances. But when you've got this really delicate telescope and you really don't want to get anything on the mirrors, yeah, you use uh, non-explosive uh, separating devices. Somebody in the chat said, uh, good thing they didn't use the, the explosive pins. Oh yeah, death can, there you go. <laughs> Glad no one mistakenly used the explosive pins. Yeah, one of those would ruin your day. Um, okay, so all 107 of those uh, pins have been released. Um, the mid booms have been deployed. Um, the next step is to start taking up the rest of those tethers and pulling the thing taut. That will begin today on the second. Um, I don't know if it's begun already or if it's going to happen after the podcast ends. Um, but hopefully that should all be done by the time you're listening to this on Tuesday or later. Um, and the shield tensioning is probably going to be real boring and monotonous. Um, they've got five different layers. They're going to start by tensioning the bottom layer and then the one up and then the one up all the way up to the one that is closest to the instrument, to the, to the main, uh, the main mirror. And, uh, that's, that's where we sit with JWST right now. Um, I'll, I'll get you more next week. We're gonna, we're gonna watch this thing, uh, finish this amazing unfolding origami act and, and get out to L2 and finally begin to do some science. Mike in the chat just gave us a, a tweet from Jonathan McDowell. Turns out, uh, update, they're not going to begin doing tensioning on the sunshade until Monday, tomorrow, or the day before this episode gets posted. Um, they're taking some extra time to verify that the spacecraft is working well in its current configuration. Thank you, Mike. Cool. Well, that was very thorough. Well, I am nothing if not exhaustingly <laughs> thorough. Not exhaustively thorough, exhaustingly thorough. <laughs> yeah, that's an important distinction. Yeah. Well, I mean, well, we'll I, get our exhaustive evaluation by the end, right? So in about a month or so, a couple months. Right, right, right. Well, I, I say exhausting because we got uh, a review on uh, uh, Google or uh, Apple Podcasts. It was like, it, they just go into just tiring detail. I'm like, yeah, exactly. You're welcome. Oh, yeah. Either you like it or you don't. <laughs> I like it. So I'm going to do it. Get, get some caffeine if it tires you up. And so we're moving on to short and sweet. And Dennis, what is the first one? First up, Tianher avoids a pair of Starlinks. On December 6th, China notified the UN of a pair of avoidance maneuvers conducted by its Tianhe space station on July 1st and October 21st. The maneuvers were necessary to avoid a possible collision with a pair of Starlink satellites that were in an orbit below the normal 550-kilometer operational orbit. The Starlinks were in the process of deorbiting and thus were briefly a hazard for Tianhe, which was inhabited at the time of the avoidance maneuver. SpaceX has not commented on the incident so far, but several Chinese media outlets are accusing SpaceX of intentionally, quote, testing China's sensibility in space. Sure. Yeah, yeah right. You know, and I don't even know what that means. I mean, I, I pretty much get it, but testing your sensibility. They're going to go, weird... uh, don't make me get crazy on you. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> right? it's like, 
it, like are they saying testing our their patience? Their patience, yeah. See, that's like the word that I would use, but sensibility, such a strange word to use. Yeah. Translations, what you can do. And next up, Sherpa goes green. Benchmark Space Systems has installed its Halcyon Avant thrusters on a spaceflight Sherpa LTC tug. These new thrusters are powered by a green propellant that serves as an alternative to hydrazine, a fuel that is toxic and requires special handling. The Halcyon thrusters are capable of 303 seconds of bias P, and Benchmark Space Systems hopes to increase that to as much as 320 seconds, making them the most efficient thrusters of any kind in that class, even compared to ones powered by more traditional hypergolics. The Green Sherpa Tug was scheduled for launch on a SpaceX Transporter 3 mission set to lift off mid-January, but the propulsion system developed a leak and has now been sent back to Benchmark's facility for inspection. So it will not be lifting off. All right, finally, SLS has been delayed by a computer problem. The first SLS launch, scheduled for mid to late February, has been delayed due to an issue with a controller on one of the four engines on the rocket's first stage. One of the two redundant controllers failed to reliably power up during integrated vehicle tests at Kennedy Space Center, though the engines performed well during tests at Stena Space Center. NASA will replace the faulty controller and continue investigation into the root cause of the failure, but this delay will push back the launch of SLS to no earlier than March 12th. All right, so moving on to this week in spaceflight history, uh, we have a couple of winners. We have the Greek and Desk and Miller, both of whom uh, got the correct event, and they get bonus points for getting the clue, which I thought was a cool clue. Uh, I like mm. scram buttons, and the, the clue was smash the scram button. So I guess that's a reference that some people don't really get. Or I certainly they know didn't. Yeah. We, we worked on the clue together, and I was like, is it? David, are you sure about this one? And yeah, like you're like, yeah, link, link, link. Here you go. This is actually a word. So <laughs> it's just a cool term that you hear in like mostly a lot of sci fi shows. And maybe that's where I hear uh, it a lot, you know. But I mean, it's a real thing too, which has to do with nuclear reactors. Yeah. Like, like I, I, I hear scram button. I just, my brain goes immediately to scramjet. So there's an engineering side to it, but I'd never heard of a scram button before. Okay, so you never heard of it either. Okay. But it was a great clue, and thank you for passing that one on to me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so you got this week's event. So what is this scram button in reference to? Right, so this is in reference to the 5th of January, 1973, and it was the cancellation of the NERVA program. So the NERVA is a really interesting and very 1960s program uh, that the U.S. had been running back in the day, and NERVA, N-E-R-V-A, stands for Nuclear Engine for Rocket Vehicle Application. And so this was, as we'll see, not just a nuclear rocket engine, but one that, uh, so this would be nuclear thermal propulsion, right? So not so much, you know, just creating, uh, dropping fusion bombs behind your (laughs) spacecraft and having that propel you, but rather using the heat from radioactive, from a nuclear reactor to heat a propellant to very high temperatures and you can get some high uh, specific impulse and thrust that way. And so uh, this uh, NERVA program was a subset of a larger one to come up with a nuclear rocket uh, called the Rover program. And so Rover had been around since the 50s. They were looking at upper nuclear upper stages t- for missiles where nuclear propulsion would take your warhead to wherever you needed it to go. Uh, They even considered looking at a nuclear upper stage for the Saturn V, which as far as I can tell, this is different than the the Nova 
Saturn V successor that could have also had an upper stage, but uh, just a straight up Saturn V upper stage. So they looked into potentially having, uh, just imagine this combination, a, a an S1C as your first step, uh, an S2 dummy stage just filled with uh, water, I guess, in your tanks, and then having your nuclear upper stage, an SN stage. So uh, I remember when you were talking about the uh, the S1, not the S1V, right? The S1, uh, the, the cluster thruster. Mm-hmm. Uh, just a few weeks ago, uh, we, we got to hear so much about S1s, As and Bs and Cs and S4s and S2s and all that. We could have had an SN in the mix as well, but huh. uh, that, that never came to fruition and they never did make the upper uh, stage of the Saturn V nuclear, as, as everyone is well aware. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kind of surprised though that they were looking at putting these on nuclear missiles because this is for, you know, very high specific mm-hmm. impulse. And I mean, it makes sense in space, but if you're just trying to send a missile somewhere else on the planet, they can already do that. I mean, that's something that's already possible. Mm-hmm. So what's the benefit of trying to put a whole nuclear engine on something like that? Right. You know? So I was hoping you could help me with this because when I think of a nuclear rocket, I think, yeah, you can have one with a decent thrust, but not any thrust that you can't already achieve with chemical rockets. And maybe in the 50s, that wasn't true. Because like you're saying, right, I I think of nuclear, at least based on just playing Kerbal, is something that's going to be not the highest thrust, certainly more than electric propulsion, but it still has that quite high ISP compared to chemical rockets. Mm -hmm. But everything I was seeing that was talking about the early days of the rover program was if you had this nuclear upper stage, then that would provide more thrust and you'd be able to take a larger payload to the target. And that's the thing that I don't know if maybe that's just talking about the uh, contemporary chemical propulsion that they were working with at the time. I mean, keep in mind, this is right 1950. So this is pre Atlas even. Yeah, that's true. So maybe, yeah, maybe we just didn't really understand, uh, you know, we didn't really have a a good handle on it at that point. Yeah. Because I mean, it was canceled in 1973. And by that point that was no longer an issue, but yeah, back in the fifties, I suppose it was. Yeah. And, 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 and really what happened was the, 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 the space race happened. And once once that happened, then this this shifted from being this rover program shifted from being a and if you're wondering, rover isn't an acronym for anything. It's just a military program, and they give it a funny name, you know, Project Rover. It's a, a random thing to have your classified doc, documents labeled by. And so uh, then that's when you know, I guess after Sputnik launched, that's when they went and shifted it to NASA, the newly created NASA as well as the uh, Atomic Energy Commission, or AEC, which was the predecessor of uh, what ultimately is now the Department of Energy. And so it, it started off very much a military application and then moved. And so to set the tone, this is the, you know, this is the, the 60s uh, at this point, and we're already talking about crewed planetary missions to other planets. And so if you want to send humans to Venus and Mars, that's where, like you were alluding to before, where nuclear propulsion could be super helpful. And you could cut travel time by hundreds of days, potentially, which would be really, really helpful for trying to keep people alive this whole time. So as I mentioned before, NERVA is a subset of this larger nuclear program, the rover program. And the NERVA engine development began in 1961. And so there were two private companies, Aerojet and uh, Westinghouse, that were contracted to be in charge of the engine development, while, as I mentioned before, NASA and the AEC were the government bodies that were responsible for overseeing the program. And so they actually went and combined uh, this, just as far as an organizational matter, took NASA and the AEC and put them underneath the Space Nuclear Propulsion Office 
SNPO, which is pretty cool that we had a space nuclear propulsion office at one point. <laughs> uh, that'd be something cool to be the director of. And, and, and basically you had, you know, a top person at NASA and a top person from the AEC uh, running that. It, it was very efficient as far as just a, from a systems engineering and a management uh, professional uh, management and planning uh, perspective to have them under this one group because at the end of the day you have people who might be experts in nuclear reactors and people who are very experts in engines but when you bring those two together now you've disentangled now you've entangled the different components together the the your turbo pump needs to deal with uh, superheated hydrogen pro uh, propellant you know, and so how exactly you're going to get that in your nozzle if you're going to regeneratively cool it and get all this to work at the same time having a nuclear reactor in the core of your uh, your engine. And so it's pretty wild. Uh, they they set the tone for what they wanted or set the benchmark that they wanted uh, a specific impulse greater than 800 seconds. So again, much better than you can do with a chemical rocket, but not quite those orders of magnitude higher you can do with electric propulsion. But you could still pull off hundreds of thousands of pounds of thrust. And so greater than 200,000 if you wanted to head to Mars or greater than 100,000 for lunar missions, they went with that. Now, the engine itself, uh, they had this clever approach down the road. They were already planning for if we use this to fly people, right? if we use this to actually build rockets, then maybe we should make these engines very modular. And so you could then just tack on N many Nerva engines to whatever your mission needed to get the job done uh, in terms of providing enough thrust. And so they settled on uh, the baseline engines with an ISP of 825 seconds and 75,000 pounds force. So for the first engine you're developing, a little short of what your target was, but still, I suppose, good enough. And for something like this would require over one gigawatt of reactor power, which I'm not an expert, but just from <laughs> some, I mean, obviously I'm not an expert, but from some gig Googling, I was like, that seems like an awful lot. Yeah. Yep. And if, if you just naively take all the power plants on Earth and the cumulative reactor power that we have from them, the average is shy of a gigawatt, but not a half a gigawatt. It's somewhere, I don't know, 0 0.7, 0 0.8, somewhere in that ballpark. So I guess, I mean, this is this is going way back in the day. And of course, not all reactors are born equal, but this was something that, spoiler, they were able to achieve, which is quite wild, I think. Wow. And, and so your summing of all those reactors on earth that's just nuclear reactors used for power right not not all power sources and not all nuclear reactors like i'm assuming you're you're talking about like nuclear reactors powering an electrical grid and not nuclear reactors powering subs as well yes yeah, i look at this uh i'm not including yeah i'm not including sub ones i'm not including uh research reactors uh i i found yeah there's about 450 some ones that uh, I, I suppose, I don't know if that includes submarines or not, but I mean, yeah, I, I can't, imagine I can't, the line share are ones that are powering. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I can't imagine that like research and nuclear subs add too much to the global total, but like I, I would have bet that, that we had more than a gigawatt worth of nuclear power on earth, but wow. Yeah. So <laughs> that's yeah. crazy. Well, apparently a nuclear-powered sub is somewhere around 150 to 200 megawatts, and that's it. Although I can't find the wiki entry, and I literally just found like a, I think it was in the intro, I, I picked up, I, and funny enough, it wasn't nuclear uh, reactors uh, wiki entry, but apparently one of them, I just then did a search for gigawatt and found 
that value that I told you, but just doing a Google search, uh, according to energy.gov, nuclear energy has been powering the U.S. grid for the past six decades and produces around one gigawatt of power per plant on average. So, hey, I'm an astronomer. If I'm within a factor of 10, yeah. I nailed it. And so <laughs> well, I'm going to give myself full credit for that. <laughs> well, so if, if you take this figure of 2553 terawatt hours and divide it by 24 and divide that by 256, you get... 0.42. So yeah, Gigawatts. order of magnitude is oh, what we're God. looking at. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. Well, that's, I mean, that's, and the funny thing is that that might years from now when this, uh, the knowledge of this episode and this uh, segment fades, we'll probably all remember roughly <laughs> the energy, the nuclear power generation uh, on average. So the rocket itself, it's about 22 feet high. So it's not uh, it's not a little teeny tiny rocket, or sorry, the engine itself is about 22 feet high, and so uh, they're really cool pictures of these. Uh, there was hardware built and tested, and so uh, you could definitely Google and check these things out. And so the upshot is that you have your hydrogen for your propellant uh, for for this particular type of engine, the the Nerva. Your hydrogen propellant comes in. It basically passes around the nozzle to do some good old regenerative cooling. And then works its way towards the uh, reactor where I guess it picks up some even more heat. Uh, it, it actually splits and goes in a lot of different directions. But the long story short is that the, the nuclear reactor fuel heats it up. I'll talk a little more later about what the fuel was. And something, too, that I think is fun is that it, you know, they didn't have to just use the propellant to cool the the nozzle, but also to cool all the various, some other various uh, nuclear components because you've got things in this type of rocket that you typically wouldn't have in a traditional chemical-based rocket. And so uh, ultimately, though, you have this heated hydrogen that you then exhaust out the nozzle, and that's enough to go and propel your spacecraft. And as far as, like I mentioned, it was turbo-pump-driven. They considered a whole bunch of different uh, cycles for this, uh, cold bleed, gas pressurization cycles, chemical gas generators, and topping cycles. Uh, We'll have in the show notes uh, a document that includes a nice table where they consider the pros and cons and challenges of all those. But ultimately, they thought that a hot bleed cycle would be the easiest one to really get going uh, quickly and working. Uh, it had less hurdles uh, to encounter where you had to, you didn't have to cool the gas as much, say, in some of these other ones, or deal with really, really high temperature gas. And so ultimately, some of this hot nitri- nitrogen gas from the nozzle, you would then mix it with cooler gas, cooler hydrogen gas, and then pass it through the turbine to drive the turbo pump. Can you talk about this reaction mass? Why are they using hydrogen instead of like water or something? Well, well just being a lighter mass wouldn't you just get a higher uh, specific impulse from that could you uh, oh yeah you're you're right it must it must be the uh specific impulse is more important than the these other considerations it's it's so funny how specific impulse winds up being really important sometimes more important than the actual mass of the stuff that you're flinging behind you it's funny you said because the a lot of the tests i'm not going to talk about every single test that they did uh, they but they did do a lot of ground tests uh, they they canceled the idea of doing uh, flight tests, but <laughs> yeah, uh, a lot a lot of times the limiting factor was just that they would run out of hydrogen. Huh. And the tests that they could do, they had to build a new site with much more massive hydrogen tanks before they could do like more proper testing of just the whole mm. engine rather than components. Because yeah, you you do burn through a lot of it, and like you say, hydrogen uh, it's not terribly dense, and so you're gonna have a large volume. You'd have to uh, have to control it so, to hold it all. So Dathkin says, far from an expert, but I think 
nuclear thermal with water is comparable to LH2 and LOX as a chemical propellant. So oh. like we're talking about like really bad then uh, to the point where, yeah, it is actually worth using hydrogen if, if you're remembering correctly. Yeah. Thanks. That can, that's great context to put in there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. See, numbers mean nothing. We got to have <laughs> concrete uh, uh, analogies here for me to catch it. Okay. Thank you, Dennis. As I mentioned, right, they tested uh, components of the different parts of the engine, uh, prioritizing the fuel elements, the turbo pump and the nozzle, then subassemblies, and then ultimately the engine itself. And so uh, another thing uh, that I thought also was worth mentioning is that the rover program preceded NERVA by about half a decade, what they had been doing, uh, Los Alamos, and, it, and apparently it wasn't Los Alamos National Laboratory at the time, it was Los Alamos Science Laboratory. And so I'm just going to call it Los Alamos to make it uh, generic. So Los Alamos had come up with uh, a bunch of, of these nuclear engines that might have propelled rocket uh, missiles at some point. And they tested uh, some of the first early series ones were these Kiwi uh, reactor uh, engines. And so uh, the Kiwi B4 in particular was the one that the Nerva was based on. They basically took this already existing thing that was really just a reactor with a nozzle, <laughs> and then they turned it into a proper engine. So they had to add on the other components that make that kind of thing necessary. The fun thing is they, they named the Kiwi because just like Kiwis don't fly, this one was never supposed to get off the ground. Uh, oh, okay. Are you serious? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> so that's a kind of fun uh, tongue-in-cheek reason to name it that, yeah. And then there were a few more. Uh, if you've ever heard of the Phobos uh, engines or the, what's the one called? Peewee or a Peewee, which is the name of a bird, apparently. Uh, those were later ones that the uh, rover program was was testing. And so uh, as far as, yeah, the nuclear component, the, the reactor, it consisted of its core, which uh, was a graphite modulated, I'm not sure if that's quite the right word, but a graphite modulated uh, uranium carbide uh, fuel. The idea with the graphite is that it, 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 was it, it absorbs your neutrons to keep you from going too overboard, yeah, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, yeah. As you can imagine, right, this, this Nuclear heat is going oh, to. Colin says is moderated, not modulated. Moderated. Thank you, Colin. I knew I, I was. Yeah. I knew I was almost there, but not quite. Modulated didn't sound quite right. So thank you, Colin. It's graphite moderated. And uh, mediated uh, would be exactly the opposite from what you want. <laughs> <laughs> yes. 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 Yeah. And so, uh, since this is something a key part of this, that it's not just you want to really be able to control this well. It's. It's after all going to be part of a rocket engine is that you uh, uh the reflector which is another part of nuclear reactors um was made of beryllium and so this would take neutrons that are trying to escape and then reflecting them back towards uh the fuel to get even more uh reactions uh but you also had this was interesting i i seen chernobyl right and it's been a few years so i don't remember all the details but i do remember that you had the the control rods that you would insert in there and that was a big part of why Chernobyl happened is a malfunction involving the control rods. But you could also, in smaller reactors, have what are called control drums. So because I, I'm guessing because they're smaller, there's less space for you to be inserting rods in. And so you want to be more careful about the amount of space you have. So instead, you put these rods, which we now are calling control drums, outside around the peripheral. And then you have part of the rod, one side of the rod would have the reflector and so then you could rotate the rods to have either the, reflect, the reflector oh. facing your fusion source, your fuel, or you rotate it out. So then it's going to be absorbing neutrons. So you can, uh, you can yeah. dial up, I suppose, how much uh, hmm. neutrons are getting sent back in. 
Interesting. So yeah. So you're, mm-hmm. you're denying it reflection rather than putting things in there to block it. Cause when I read control drums, I assumed that they were like shutters. And so mm-hmm. if you align them, so the shutters are all aligned, then you get lots of, uh, of, you know, direct paths through the, through the fuel source. But instead they're drums all around the outside and each one can rotate instead of rotating around the center of the entire reactor. Each mm. one rotates around almost like a, like a conveyor belt. That's really fun. Cause that, yeah, then you get, you get all the control that you want and you don't have to worry about moving things in and out of it. Like you could mm-hmm. even have those things on springs so that they would return. I mean, obviously you want it to, to fail safe, but yeah, just rotating them 180 degrees seems a lot lower stakes than a linear actuator kind of situation, especially in space when you can't count on gravity. Right, right. And if you had that, the linear style control rods, then when you're pulling them out, where are they going to yeah. go into which part yeah. of the thrust structure are they going to yeah. start yeah. entering? Well, yeah. I mean, you know, in theory, if you were to put them radially, you could just have them sticking out of the vehicle. I mean, obviously <laughs> oh. you don't want that, <laughs> but you'd want, you'd want to be uh, above the atmosphere before you do that. But I guess, yeah. right. If this is not the first stage. Then you're... Well, I mean like, yeah, but, but for like sci-fi purposes, how cool would it be to have a vehicle that that's got badass. hedgehog spikes when the engine's turned on? <laughs> that would, look that would be really cool. Like, uh, take note, video game designers. Mm-hmm. You can have that one for free. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. And so, and so that's the basic design of the engine. Uh, they were hoping to operate them for uh, an hour. That was the target. And all of this I didn't mention was taking place at Area Twenty Five in Nevada, uh, which is Jackass Flats. Have you heard of Jackass Flats before? Uh, I think I have. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. I guess it's a uh, it's a fascinating. I don't know if we're gonna get the uh, the explicit rating on here but uh <laughs> no. for saying no, that nah. no we're good no, we we're get good. away with that okay good 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 so the tests themselves uh there were a bunch of them but i just want to touch on three of them one of the early tests and then the two biggest ones for the nerva program and the early test is where we ultimately get our clue from and so in april of 1965 they were doing a test of the engine uh, i don't think it, it wasn't quite fully assembled there but they had enough parts to it to you know make it a proper test. It wasn't just a few components they were messing around with. But unfortunately for them, too much hydrogen was going into the reactor and it was overheating, it was producing too much power. And so a scram was ordered. And so a scram is, there's some argument over the etymology, uh, the origin of the word, but this is the uh, kill switch for turning off a nuclear reactor, initiating a shutdown. And so it could stand for, I think it's been backronymed into safety control rod Axeman. So killing the safety or, you know, the, well, it is what it is. <laughs> safety control rod Axeman. Yeah. That, that's worse than to ensure prompt service. Tips. What? Pe- people people oh, oh, really yeah, want things to, to oh, the acronyms. Oh. It's an ensure with an E? It, it should be right. <laughs> Tips with an I or uh, insure with oh, an like I insurance? is like insurance. Yeah, it's oh, it should weird. be insure with an E. And so to to ensure prompt service is is honestly better than Axeman nonsense. Wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So so yeah. So so that's that's where the, the clue is referencing is that they they did order it, uh, the the scram to be the, the the switch to be hit, 
this is also just as an aside the AZ5, uh, the equivalent of the AZ5 switch in Chernobyl uh, for Russian reactors. And so, but even though the scram was ordered, uh, it's not exactly clear to me uh, what happened if they actually pressed it, but it failed to work. Uh, a clogged coolant line. I guess uh, meant that it didn't work, and so the reactor let me, made let its me way guess. up. It was a it was a red rag. <laughs> oh yeah, right. <laughs> now this uh, this was not a uh, Ariane uh, uh, Spass was not involved, and so there was no red rag left uh, in there. But <laughs> that's a great callback. I think that's twice now. Thank you. In the last two episodes. Yep. Yeah, not bad. <laughs> and so it reached one point one six five gigawatts. That's the only time yeah. you're allowed <laughs> to say gigawatts <laughs> uh, before unclogging and cooling down. <laughs> gracefully and so all all ended well uh, there were no explosions and in fact the engine was so heavy duty it it basically survived no problem and they Jeez. just were able to continue tests they didn't have to refurbish or replace anything so really nice um and then the uh the next test they did one of the real biggies was the nrx uh which stands for nuclear reactor Experimental. Uh, that is the, uh, I guess, the Kiwi reactor that was pulled out from the uh, rest of the rover program. And uh, EST is the engine system test. So if you wanted to Google, like, which one is this really? It's the EST, the engine system test. And so this was in February 1966, so about a year later. And they had a number of objectives that they wanted. Uh, for example, how does the startup transient work? Uh, are they able to bootstrap itself with the turbo pump? Or do they need an external power source? Uh, how stable was the system, etc.? And so they used uh, NRX dash A5 was the reactor's name, uh, and I guess the name of the entire uh, engine and all of it. And so it actually ran for two hours with uh, 28 minutes of those at full power. And they met all the test objectives, and it was by all accounts very successful. And then there was one final big test after that, the last one for NERVA and the second to last one for the even larger rover program. And so this was the XE test for experimental engine. I didn't mention it, but the uh, the EST test had all the right components, but they weren't really configured to look like a flight engine. So if you, if you Google NERVA and you see some of the tests, if it looks like there's a lot of other peripheral stuff sitting around the test stand, you're probably looking at the EST test. If it looks like an engine, like a proper flight engine, then you're probably looking at the XE test. And so this one was conducted a few years later in 1969. It was also successful. Uh, it used the next uh, serial number engine, uh, the NRX A6. And this one ran for 115 minutes and had 28 starts. So that, as you can imagine, with a interplanetary crewed mission, yeah. you might want to have some starts uh, and have that reliability. Well, and, and yeah. 28 is better than some rockets that we use today. Yeah, not bad for 1969. Not bad for nuclear. I mean, like... <laughs> not bad for yikes. nuclear, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah this, this, this was something that they... Not only did we build the hardware and we did tests, but it really was great. Really was successful. But unfortunately, this was uh, a few years... In a few years... We had landed people on the moon, and for the same reason, it seemed they canceled everything. Uh, in 1973, this one got the axe. And so, uh, you know, there, we just didn't have the money, I guess, to uh, pursue so many things at once in terms of human and just uh, spaceflight in general, right? We were getting really in the groove of sending space probes. And uh, Apollo 17 and Skylab were also potentially on the cutting block, but it turned out that the uh, uh, Nerva... Uh, uh, was axed. And so that's where uh, I mentioned the clue is related to the scram button, but uh, Deskin uh, Miller went uh, one step further with their answer and uh, came up with a backronym, just like scram, uh, for super cool rocket 
or reactor, Axeman. And that was Nixon was the scram, apparently. He was the Axeman for the super cool rocket. And so, alas, that was the end of Nerva. But I don't know about y'all. We've been hearing about this a little more recently in the news, right? NASA's talking more about nuclear engines again. And so hopefully some of the things that we learn with the Nerva system, which is really, really, really highly documented. And so you can find all sorts of great NASA documents if you find that sort of thing interesting and really just go at it. But hopefully, yeah, hopefully the legacy of Nerva will live on and we'll have nuclear thermal propulsion uh, yeah. someday, not too soon. Yep. Just not technology from the 60s. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, that was awesome. Yeah, I do find nuclear rockets pretty interesting and I do hope that there will be uh, some more 21st century version of uh, that technology to come because uh, I do like high specific impulse. And so next week, um, our date range is uh, the 11th through the 17th of January. And Ben, do you have a clue for us? Yeah, I do. Um, so next week in 1965, the clue is no tower, more problem. And I don't know if this is at all clear, <laughs> but I mean, if, if I drop the the f fake horrible new york accent it'd be no tower more problem and i, I hope i hope that's clear enough because david you had a hard time understanding it seeing yeah. it written down so i wanted to be clear all right in 1965 all right so if you think you know what that is in reference to give us a tweet with the hashtag this week sf and good luck yeah good luck everybody okay so just a really quick um upcoming space flight events we just got one and that is a falcon 9 block 5 and that's with starling group 4-5 and so that's another batch of starling satellites it will be launching from kennedy space center as per usual from pad launch complex 39a at 2149 UT. On January 6th. So that's the only one. But yep, check that one out if you like. They, they've got it. They've got the timing set up just right to shoot straight towards uh, every Chinese space asset. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. That is your upcoming space flight event. All right. And with that, let's do over the show. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. And a special shout out to Anderson Denova, Deathkin, Delta V, The Greek, Mike, Stanley Floyo, Colin, Chevy Turkosi, and Kenton for joining us live in today's chat. Thank you. Yeah, what a group. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com and be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. Yes, and our Generation 2, our Mark II patches are ready. They're sitting on my desk. I'm going to wait to put them up on the website until I can get them out to uh, our Patreon supporters as a thank you so they will be up we're just gonna uh, get them out to patreon first and, and then we'll make them available to everybody you can talk about the show with other listeners on twitter and reddit we're orbital podcasts on both and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at the orbital mechanics.com all right so that's it we'll see you next week on robot until then later goodbye everybody see you.